Hey, let's go. Stop where you are. Let's go. Let's go. Here we 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 go. Three Sundays after Epiphany, let's pray. Men will come from east and west, from north and south, and sit at the table of the kingdom of God. Luke 13. That's a nice idea. Almighty God and Father, who's called the Gentiles to enter fellowship with your Son and wills that all of us should be saved, grant, we beg you, that the voice of your word goes to every land, that the gospel is proclaimed to every creature, that hearts are softened, and faith is served through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. It's very nice to see all of you. I hope you're well and things are going uh, back to normal. If you would put money for St. Matthew's Soup Kitchen uh, in the basket. This is actually, uh, among the things we support, this is a really good thing. I mean, basically, this thing serves poor people food in a warm, kind environment. No fuss, no muss. And it's something that's a little harder for us to do at a distance. But, you know, when you support these folks, it's just, it's the best. So if you could do that, that would be good. Uh, men's retreat, February 1st and 2nd. I'm going to send this highly technical sign-up around because we do have it on, you know, we tried to get you to do it on the, inter- on the web, but, you know, some of you do and some of you don't. And so February 1st and 2nd, it's all about suffering and the Christian art of suffering. Rickers, who's coming along, is kind of a rising star. Um, I'm kind of going from memory, but like Harvard and Yale and uh, now at Valpo, and written a couple of books and gave the inaugural Mark Knoll lecture. That was a great big deal at the 500th anniversary of the Reformation down at Wheaton College. So, I mean, he's a guy you should uh, know. And it's, you rarely get this kind of opportunity to be, you know, uh, around uh, smart, good people. So, you know, hold on to that. Anyway, Christmas go well? Y'all okay? Yeah, us too. I mean... I only had one kind of glitch to pray about was um, we're, uh, all the kids are gone. You know, Kirby and I are sitting at breakfast one morning, having a cup of coffee, talking about our lives, and she just kind of offhandedly says, you know, when you predecease me, <laughs> should such a thing happen, I hope there'll be a full investigation conducted by those whom I love, <clears throat> but you see, it sneaks up on you. You've always got things to be praying about, so uh, yeah, you can get nervous even in your own home. So, you know, it is, it is what it is. So, I mean, you know, I can't even remember what I said to you last year, so I want to just take some time to make sure we build a little base going forward. So I just want to review the major bits. I know you, this surprises you, but Occasionally, I skip over something that I didn't talk about, so I read through all the stuff I've handed out, and I grabbed a few things that might be important that we didn't talk about. I want to bundle that up, put it on a low simmer, and then when you come back next week, we will keep going. But So I've given you basically this number seven. This is uh, kind of where we've been. You should feel free to interrupt me. As you know, you, know, you wind a pastor up, they just keep talking. So you should uh, feel free to interrupt me kind of at any point. And we'll see what's happening. By the way, just thanks uh, for cu- turning out for the women's retreat. Despite the weather, the attendance was good. So that was very, very nice. And I heard the speaker was good, too. So if you have already were turned toward next year, so if you have speakers that you're interested in hearing, now's the time to let us know. Because 
Oh, never mind. I take that back. We just had a Wheaton College guy who said he would do it for us. We tried to get him this year. So we've already booked him into, believe it or not, 20. It's an art professor from Wheaton College who does religious art. So that's what we're doing. And he's doing both. As, just as we tried this year, we tried to get the same person for both, but it's very difficult to schedule persons two times, especially if they're not near. So anyway, it's all, it's all sorted out already. Uh, but at least, you know, keep it on your... All right, here's, here's where it starts. And I think this is difficult to say. You know, maybe this is easy to say when you're really young and really old, but in between with all the contingencies of life, it's very difficult. But just this basic thing that Jesus loves me that Jesus never leaves me and Jesus will never hurt me. If you can say those three things, or you can say them all together sort of in a row, Jesus loves me, Jesus is near, Jesus will never hurt me, it will rearrange the way you think about life and about the world around you. Now, usually, uh, they're the, the most... Usually the presenting symptom when somebody argues against this is their own pain. Um, and I can, you know, give you all sorts of reasons about the world's pain. I mean, one of the interesting things about America right now is uh, you just don't have to work very hard to explain why there's so much trouble because everybody in charge is about three years old. And, you know, no wonder everybody's crying and pushing each other down. Yeah, it just is, you know, this is a, sometimes it's more difficult to explain. But right now, go home and have a drink. It's easy, right? Everybody grows up. It's going to be great. So uh, here's where we are right now. Um, you know, but then, and other things are you know, uh, maybe more difficult. But your own pain is often the most difficult thing. I give you this bit from Madeline Lingle, which I've run a couple of times. She's the borrower's woman, right? And it's interesting. I don't know if I told you this, but her editor wandered into church one week when this was in the bulletin. Uh, and he sort of said, do you like that? I said, I love that. And he said, I could never get all the way there with that. But I was, which is kind of interesting. He's Lutheran, actually. Right. And I was like, very interesting. It was very interesting to talk about her. But I kind of live and die by this, okay? So there's very few things. You know, you can boil things down to five or ten things that you think are really important. This would, this would be on my list. It's very important for you in the pain of your own life to distinguish discipline, which is good for all of us. Discipline is a bump and a nudge in the right direction, and it is an act of love. When you discipline your children, it's a bump and a nudge in the right direction. If you discipline them for any other reason, for anger, for vengeance, to show them who is boss, but to help, to love... Right, And you should think of that uh, also in your own way. So always distinguish the pain of discipline from the agony of destruction. The question to ask when you suffer is, is Jesus who loves me, who is near me, and never leaves me, attempting to destroy me? Very simple diagnostic question. In this, does God intend to destroy me? And if the answer is no then everything that happens to you is received as a gift and a blessing. Now, this is gorgeous. There is only one purpose for punishment, and that is to teach a lesson. Not in the sense of, I'm going to teach you a lesson, but as in, there's a wiser way to proceed. And there is only one lesson to be taught, and that is love. This is a thing we struggle with most, and this is what the whole Reformation was based on. And this is the reason the church exists. 
The single question in the Reformation was this, does God love me? If you want to read about it, you can go read Luther in the introduction. 1542 to his New Testament works, he basically says this, I thought God hated me, so I hated him back. Then I realized God loved me, so I loved him back. I thought God demanded me to be perfect, and so I hated him because he was going to damn me for something I couldn't do. Instead, I realized that God loved me so that he gives me his own perfection and pulls me toward the perfection of the divine life, love in Christ, right? So you kind of, this is everything, right? This is everything. This is all there is. Perfect love banishes fear. I mean, that's, a, that's the first Peter, right? Perfect love casts out fear. We'll come back to that. And when we are not afraid, we know that love which includes forgiveness. And, of course, this is true for relationships. In marriages, you don't want people to be afraid of each other. It's true for parents and children. Yeah, if you can get your kids to do something by scaring them, that'll last about 10 minutes, right? This is true for friendships, right? When there's no fear then you know that you're in love. When the lesson to be learned is not love, that is punishment. That is not punishment. It is revenge or retribution. Right? So think of it this way. Love occasionally punishes, but always forgives. Boom, boom. It does both things. So you correct your children because you love them, or you correct your spouse because you love them. Right? When the lesson to be learned is not love, that is not punishment. It is revenge or retribution. Now, I actually kind of seriously ask you to think about the larger context of America. What is the conversation about? About loving other people or is it about punishing other people? Or is it about retribution and vengeance, right? Probably the lesson of love is, most, is the most terrible punishment of all and almost intolerable anguish. For it means that I have to realize what's been done, I have to be truly sorry, I have to repent, and I have to turn to God. This is commonly known as all the basics of contrition. But to love and be loved is to say, I was wrong, I repent, I make restitution, and I move forward in a different way. Now, those, if you just ask those questions, I'll go again to America about how America is working out. If people just ask themselves these questions, I was wrong. Just think about the errors in our history, the way that we treated other people, how we as a church have acted. This is not hard. I was wrong. I am sorry. I make restitution, which does not mean the cheap, hey, I forgive you and move on like nothing happened. No. When Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus makes restitution, he gives back everybody times four what he took from them. So if Zacchaeus would have just said, here, you could have your money back, the answer would have been, not even with interest. But when he makes restitution by giving times four, somebody goes, wow, this is the best investment I ever made. March has an invitation to be a trillionaire up here if anybody wants to go. It opens up and it says, get in early on legalized cannabis. Now, why she's on that mailing list, I think only she can answer that, and I really don't want to dwell too long on this. But the number of crimes we've had almost committed this morning is kind of startling for the group, right? No, it's hard, but we're back to real life. It's not Christmas anymore. Okay, so... You know, everybody says, and then Jesus says, salvation has come to this house today. Everybody turns around, right? And then the next thing, all, 
And most of us are too filled with outrage at rape and murder to want the sinner to repent. We want the sinner to feel terrible, but not to turn to God and be made whole and be forgiven. So in my own mind, I was talking to the with Pastor Buse, but this is very interesting. One of the things that's most interesting watching from outside and what's happening in America is the demand for apology and what makes a suitable apology, which Pastor Bukes then, uh, I want to give him credit for this, is an interesting idea. He basically said, you see, here we all say, even though people say the church is stupid and it doesn't, there's nothing um, relevant about it and it's old school, what, it, what, is, the, what is it when somebody repents and, a, and an apology, when somebody makes an apology and it's taken? What else is that but people saying they've made atonement, Right? which is the church's bread and butter. When people will accept one apology and not another, what's the difference there? And why do PR firms control the apology now in the way that they largely control our politics? Sometimes when I'm musing about this, I think to myself, these politicians on both sides are better than this, but there's somebody telling them that won't win, right? Because anger appeals to us because we like vengeance, because we think we're better than other people, right? This is why the church is completely relevant at this moment, because the church lives in love, which is as anti to anything going on in America right now as anything, right? So we show that we do not know the meaning of forgiveness any more than Jonah did in his vindictive outrage of the people of Nineveh. So what God wants is for you to live in wholeness. And in a moment, uh, of course, the practical application of this is to pray for your enemies and do good to those that hurt you. So I'm just trying to get, you know, where we've been. Uh, You you should always have kind of your presuppositions explicit. These are mine. Jesus loves me. Jesus never leaves me. Jesus never hurts me. And love is the thing. God is love doesn't mean God likes to love or occasionally engages in love. It means the character, the essence of God is love. And so the divine life is to live inside love. Your life is meant to be working that out, even when it's painful, even when you're disadvantaged. Check your icons next time you look around. When you see an icon where the person has a cross in their hand, often at their side, just sort of casually there. It means that person was martyred. You just, just check your icons when you see them. You'll find out this is more common. And then the second thing, number two, this is, and I said to you, this is about the only thing that I know about prayer, which is I know where it ends. When we pray, God gives us what we ask or something better. And so, you know, all this stuff about, you know, that I was taught when I was a kid, red light, God doesn't give it to you, yellow light, Jesus says, wait, green light, you got it all just how you wanted it. Yeah. No, that's stupid. God answers every prayer, every prayer. Look at you, got him in the right way under pressure. You're a fine human being, man. Here's how the story goes. I'll go a little bit more quickly here because you remember this. We talked about prayer being a beautiful work and this gift from God. Jesus says, the disciples say to Jesus, teach us to pray. Jesus says, okay, and then he gives them his own prayer. He doesn't give them, like, techniques, fold your hands, close your eyes, turn to the east. Instead, he says, I was actually just saying this, and since I love you and your family, you can say my prayer too. And then my utter insistence to you, 
that if you only prayed the Lord's Prayer, all would be well. Because there's nothing that can be pulled out of that. Just sidebar. I actually meant it when I said I'm just trying to keep you on a low simmer. Um, I want you to be more interested in prayer than you were when you came in. But I'm uh, nervous if you get too interested. Because too many people's prayers go like this. You know, this is why the daily offices pray seven times a day. Or the Psalms, morning and evening. The discipline of doing what needs to be done, which is asking God who's near to intervene in the course of the cosmos and in the course of your own life is so important. So I want you to be um, engaged, but I'm slightly nervous when you get excited. I just want to kind of keep the discipline of this, okay? And then I want to sort of put to rest the notion that, or I've tried to put the rest to the notion that some people's prayers are way other. I actually get a little bit nervous when uh, every once in a while when somebody's jammed up, they'll send me an email or leave a message that says, I want you to pray for me, which is great. And then if they follow up with, because I know you got the I know, I know you got the inside track, I'm like, <laughs> come over for dinner. You'll see if we have an inside track or not. Yeah, like my prayers are no better than your prayers, right? I mean, your good prayers are the prayers that you say. Those are the good prayers. The bad prayers are the prayers that are unsaid. So this whole notion that God makes the first move, and we read these things, you know, God is listening before we speak. Isaiah, before you ask, I will answer you. That's a beautiful thing, right? So, so often, and if you turn on any television, go to cable today, you turn on any, almost any, 99.2% of the ones that you'll turn on, Somebody will stand up in the name of Jesus and tell you what you've got to get done in order for God to love you. That is the saddest thing and the single thing that the church has fought over from forever. Just read the text. Before you ask, I am listening. Before you need, I am giving. Before you love me, I love you. Right? And before you pray, I'm praying for you. And so we did this text from Romans where the text says Jesus himself intercedes at the right hand of God for you and when you're completely jammed up, the Holy Spirit probes your heart and prays for you with sighs too deep for words. So like everything else in the Christian life, your prayers are simply response to the grace that's been shown you. God is merciful and he welcomes your prayers and mercy. God loves you and he'd love to hear from you. If you always keep the order, God to us, then you'll get it right. God to us, love you, love you back. But God loves us first. So if you keep that order, your prayers will make um, a tremendous amount of sense. So how are you doing? Everybody good so far? Because I'm going to just kind of, we're going to scooch ahead into a different way of talking about prayer in the weeks ahead. Uh, but all this stuff has to be kind of, because I want to talk about, for example, prayer that stems from helplessness. Right? What it looks like when you can't even pray. What does that look like? Well, for example, a prayer as becoming growing a stature of Christ. You know? So there's a lot to do. But if you don't get these kind of basic things down, that Jesus loves you, Jesus never leaves you, Jesus answers every prayer. And um, Jesus, I was thinking, you know, have you had, this is a true story, do you know? Um, once when we used to have the Easter vigil back at midnight, do you remember those days, anybody? Right? 
We had the Easter Vigil. We went home about 1. I think Kirby might have woke up at like about 3. Now, remember, we had church at 6, too. She's like, what's that sound? I'm like, hmm. If I were outside, it would be like a waterfall. But since I'm inside... Is that what happened? Yeah. And she Somebody. said, it's raining in the bathroom. Oh, yeah, it's raining in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, go back to bed. Yeah, we're inside now. Everything is safe. <laughs> and I said, no, it's not. She goes, my pajamas are all wet. Like, oh. <laughs> James Harold Butcher Plumbing, 630. <laughs> but I was thinking about prayer from that story because prayer is like, you've seen the three. You know what? You know what the saddest things is and the greatest reason to have a vicar? I was going to say to you, it's like the Three Stooges, but do you know the vicar has never seen the Three Stooges. He actually doesn't know who the Stooges are. I'm like, head in a vice with a hammer and a blowtorch? You've never seen this? So if any of you give the vicar an extended piece of Americana, invite him over to binge watch on the Three Stooges. He's got to see this as part of his American shaping tour. So anyway, I was thinking the prayer is very much like that bubble that appears in the Three Stooges where the water is in the paint. And like, if you just touch it, you just touch it, it's there waiting for you. And then all the gifts come down from above. <laughs> Prayer is exactly like this, right? You don't manufacture, you just sort of like, that looks so interesting. <laughs> it's, just, it's just like that. It's the lure, right, of what God's doing to you. Now, the difficulty, of course, is that, and this is, you know, kind of counterpart. First, people are like, why don't you pray for me because I can't pray? Okay. Another common pastoral thing is, People come and sit down on my couch and they say, um, God never answers my prayers, you know. And then the question is, you know, why would anybody listen to you? And one of the things that I think is most neglected is this notion that we're family and friends of Jesus. We went through these texts, you're God's child. So you should know when you wake up in the morning, the Lord says about you precisely what he said about Jesus when he popped out of the water last week. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. He looks at you and says, you are my beloved with whom I am well pleased. I love you. So you are brother to Jesus and um, little brother of the angels, right? You are, uh, you are family and you have the ear of God. And God is very interested in what you have to say. <coughs> Just sidebar, something I probably didn't say to you, especially you who are worriers a lot. Um, Occasionally, I bump into a worrier in the church. So uh, if this is you, um, you should remember that uh, I described this to you as a royal court in the ancient world where there were sort of servants, but then there were courtiers. The courtiers were considered family. They were like cabinet heads and chief of staff, and so they have access to the father. One of the interesting things I think I neglected to say to you was, you should know that when you give your problems to God, they become his problems. So when, once you appeal to Caesar, there was no going back. For example, I don't know if you remember in Acts, where Paul is arrested, he's sent to Caesarea Philippi. They say, the governor says to him, basically, what are you doing here? He says, look at what they've done to me. And then the governor says, you know, you got a good case. If it were up to me, I'd release you right now. But, do you remember what he said? But you, you appealed to Caesar. You appealed to Caesar. And I can't get in the way of that. He's got a higher pay grade. And so off 
off Paul goes to Rome and it doesn't end well. You can see how it didn't end well if you take the Scavi tour at the Vatican. You know there's a stake that says Peter's here and then Paul is Peter, but another story, all right? So um, why would anybody listen to you? Because you're friends and family, that's why. And you should always remember that um, God loves you in a way that we can't quite explain, right? But you should feel free access. Now, here's the thing. If you don't pray, if you're in rejection of this, if you're angry, if you manifest sin, if you never go to church, if you don't care, I mean, the Lord is still there like that big, you know, thing above you just waiting for you to touch it, but he won't force you. Love doesn't work by force. So, and I, I will say, um, you know, when I'm dead and gone, if I could uh, ask one thing for you, I would ask for you all to remember that it's a yes world and not a no world. There is a way that especially pastors come to their engagement with the notion that they're going to just straighten everybody out. And you all should shape up. And I know what's good for you. So pay attention to what I tell you to do, right? That's a very different. So the primary affect then is judgment and force. If there's one thing that I would hope would happen over the course of the years here is that you would realize that things work by mercy and by love, right? So the affect of a congregation, of a pastor, of people in a congregation needs to be mercy, which is simply love applied to misery. You, you take love and you touch it to the spot that hurts. It's like, it's like salving a wound. Mercy is love applied to misery. Boom, boom. You take this divine thing and you put it where it's needed most. That's very different from, I'm going to straighten you out. This is the... Um, you know, sort of the cruel first mistake of guys who just come out of seminary. They've sat around with a bunch of boys for four years, all trying to argue about who's rightest, and then they come to you, um, sometimes with a bit of disdain, and would be very happy to straighten you out. You know, the rookie mistake is a guy who goes into a congregation and excommunicates all his elders six months in. In the seventh month, he has neither health care or a job. But that's another, you know, sometimes, you know, if you hit your thumb with a hammer, you learn to stop hitting. But some, some things are to be grieved and are bigger than mistakes that should be made. The one thing for you always to remember, you should just ask this question. See, there's such basic things, but forgotten. Is our affect mercy, right? Is our interest in touching love to what hurts? Touching love to what hurts. Now, you already know that love sometimes takes the form of correction gently, but the preponderance is healing. That's the question. And if you lose that, you'll just become like every other church in every other part of the world because it's so easy. It's so easy to be superior, right? It's so easy to have them and us. It's so easy even to look at the world and say we're better than they are. There's nowhere in the scriptures. Jesus is the biggest sinner that ever lived. So you should just kind of tuck that away as you go. I've given you a full page of things kind of bundling up on the next page of what prayer does. It has order, it has beauty. It reaffirms your dignity as a human being. These, should, um, these sorts of things should define your uh, reaction to the new Gillette commercial, right? Yeah, I'm going there. That's right. So uh, 
prayer, you know, lets you influence the world. Prayer eases your frustration. We talked about the nine times in a row that people come to Jesus. The centurion with a servant, the man with a son who's died, the woman whose daughter is demon-possessed. One after another, they come to Jesus and say, can you get to fix this for me? Jesus is like, yeah, I'm, I got it. Prayer neutralizes your anger. Now, this is a thing I didn't do. If you have a Bible, why don't you spin it open to this text? There are two things I didn't do. Psalm 103 about humility and this Matthew text about anger. I want to do these today because I actually didn't do them, and they're sort of important for you. Um, when people are angry beyond measure, what I ask them often to do is to, I first say, you know, can you imagine your enemy in hell? Sometimes people are very, oh, yeah, I can. And then I sort of ask them to describe it, complete with, you know, red suit, horns, and fire, and pitchfork, right? And it's kind of amazing sometimes how, how far that can be played out. Now, here's the thing. You can understand this the way we sometimes wound other people. You can completely understand why people have this reaction. You know, you can imagine the horrible things that people do to each other and that we've done to each other. Problem is, is that will eat you alive and define, and can possibly define the rest of your life. And at some point, the choice is whether you want an action that somebody else has done to you to define you, which is really to let them continue to have power over you. So the question is, how do you come free from that? And the answer is, you pray for your enemies. See, it's not just a throwaway when Jesus says to people, turn the other cheek, pray for your enemies, do good to those who hurt you, lend and expect nothing in return, right? This isn't just sort of like, I'm going to show you a different way. This is for your own healing. This is so that you can uh, have Jesus as king and you right there without some intermediary who is redefining your life in a way that Jesus doesn't hope for you. It's counterintuitive, but then love your enemies and do good to you. those who hate you is counterintuitive. But this is what will happen to you. When you pray for someone whom you hate, and you don't even have to um, make a list or put it in your calendar, the people you hate will pop up in your mirror in the morning, you know, before you've brushed your teeth. So when the people you hate come to mind, you pray for them. Uh, you don't pray that God would destroy them, but you may freely pray that God would restore them in justice and in mercy which means then that God himself will sort out what's best for that person. Now, just to say what you've, what you've done, you've basically gone to Caesar and said, this is your problem now. So you've taken this person who's wounded you deeply, who's controlled your life, who's changed your destiny and your fate in some way. And you say to yourself, how can I move past that so I'm restored? I mean, and sometimes your life will never be the same. However, it can be better. It can be better in a different sort of way, right? There's things we can do to each other that can't be changed, and we just have to sort of power through it, but not in the normal human way. 
the way that we do it is that we pray for those who have wounded us. Because what you'll find, you pray that Jesus would restore them in justice and in mercy, which means Jesus can have the last word. Uh, and as you know, mercy is resistible, but justice is not. And if people won't have mercy, then they'll get what they ask for, which is justice. Hell is when God gives you your way forever. Hell is when God lets you have your way forever. When God comes to you and says, I love you, and I want to be merciful towards you, and I want to heal you, and you say, uh, I have no need of that, or I'm better than that, then God doesn't force you to be loved. Love never works by force. But if you're struggling with somebody who's wounded you, um, whenever they come to mind, you pray for them. You'll know that you're healed because one day you'll wake up and you'll say, after a month or a year, they don't come to mind anymore. And that is a gift of prayer. So one of the things that you can do is neutralize anger in this way. This, of course, you know, is not popular or intuitive, but frankly, it does uh, work. So, hmm. Somebody switched my Bible to small print while we were Christmas. Let's see. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, right? And then verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I hear it said about 19 times a day whenever I turn on any form of media. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father. Because what did Jesus do? This is very nice in the sermon today. Because what does the son of the father do? He suffers the innocent death um, you know, of those who hate him. That you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the just and the unjust. So God is always there like doing good toward people. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Hey, tax collectors do that. If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Gentiles do that. Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But of course, for us, perfect and forgiveness are synonyms. To be perfect is to be forgiven, and to be forgiven is to be perfect. So in forgiveness, or I'm sorry, yes, in forgiveness, in love, you pray for your enemies, and you trust Jesus who is near, who never leaves you and would never hurt you, to sort it out, even other people. Um, this is hard because this is, you know, we could spend a year on this. There's a whole range of other things about how you don't make yourself a punching bag and how you step out of the way and how you do argue for justice and how you make things happen in the world. There's all these other things. I'm talking about a very small... I'm talking about your own life where you've been wounded, right? And if there are successive wounds or they grow out like concentric circles, then there's more to talk about. But I just want to say to you, prayer um, neutralizes anger, okay? Because you never know who's listening. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, there's, well, never mind. I got, I got so many stories to tell you. Just you who saw the pool noodle incident, I repent. I'm just going to say that, okay? You don't, yeah, sorry. It's my boyhood coming out. I made the poinsettia into a gun just in case if any of you are curious, but 
never, never mind. I, you know, I'm just, I'm hopeless. Uh, let me just say a couple more things, just if you want to go on the offensive a bit. Um, I worry most about your anger and your fear. And I put worry there as just a low-grade fear. Worry is just kind of like a low-grade temperature. It just kind of chases with you. But uh, this whole notion that perfect love casts out fear and that the, where it says Jesus will stick with you down the mountain, that's transfiguration. The text is coming up soon. But you remember the primary thing about transfiguration is the God who shows you everything. So there's Moses and Elijah and the future and yourself. And let's build three shacks and stay here forever. The very next day, Jesus goes down the mountain and there's a boy at the bottom who's, um, as I recall, he, he rise and cast himself into the fire. And there's another father going, my boy like tossed himself into the fire when he has these fits. Can you help him? And Jesus is kind of like, yeah, that's what we do. And then the same people who are on the mountain of transfiguration, they end up in Gethsemane. So they see this marvelous, wonderful thing. And you've all had this. You've had things where they're marvelous and wonderful in your life. And then you have these things that look like Gethsemane where you're in such pain, you actually go comatose. Same Jesus is there. And that's the sort of love that can give you hope and take care of your fear. Uh, let me say two more things. Um, prayer, I just want to say, ah, so much to talk about. Prayer, you know, one of the things about prayer is, and I just, especially with the, it's sort of interesting, the rise of uh, the demonic and, uh, so, in the church, there's never been a greater demand for exorcisms. It was just really interesting. There was, I'd read an article about the Catholics are overwhelmed by the number of people seeking exorcism. So that's very interesting in its own self. And number two, everything from Netflix is about a demon. Is there anything? I mean, I think the price is right is now about something demonic. I can't, you know, Plinko. I mean, that was thick. Anyway, so here's the thing. One of the things you should remember about your prayer is Jesus already won this battle, and you're on Jesus' side, so you're a winner even though you feel like a loser sometimes. Now, I just, the reason I put a hyphen in that is that wasn't a spell check goof. That was like prayer discourages Satan, which means it takes the courage out of him, right? If you read about exorcisms or if you pay attention to it, um, not, I don't know, I don't watch this on television because I get enough of it during my day job. But if you read about uh, exorcism with priests, the, the primary... People, they talk about pride hanging in the air, you know, thick like a cloud, like fog or honey, right? Because pride is the first sin and is the constitution where God is love, Satan is pride. And so there's this constitution of pride that sort of can be overwhelming, except that um, the devil hates to be laughed at. It's interesting, sometimes when you have, uh, you, know, you know, gallows humor is a thing, or when you make fun of something, when you laugh at something so bad, you know, psychologists will talk about that as a defense. But it's not just a defense. For Christians, to laugh at evil, and I don't mean laugh like evil's okay, I mean like, I mean like when Jesus died on the cross and Satan thought he had the last laugh and he resurrects and Satan is crushed. I mean like that. The devil cannot stand it. And that's why, you know, the, the ability for Christians to have a hopeful joy and even laughter. The devil hates laughter, right? The devil hates laughter because he loses his grip on you. 
when you live in joy. He can't quite get a hold on you. It's, it's not as effective. And this is discouraging to him. Um, you know what? I'm just going to read this last thing. We still need to do humility. If you want to read ahead, Psalm 103, I haven't done it. But this thing from, I run this from Kapan occasionally. But just, you know, in being free in higher prayers. For another thing, this is at the bottom of almost the last page. I never quite get, I was thinking this morning when I got up, this is not going to be enough, but I'm a little worried now. <laughs> For another thing, prayer is not going to God, he's already in you, or seeking God, he's already found you, or opening yourself to God, you couldn't keep him out if you tried, or becoming spiritual, he's already sent you the spirit, who would rather show you Jesus than help you display your spiritual prowess. And it's certainly like buttering God up with abject apologies for your existence. Because in his beloved son, he always thinks you're dandy, right? Prayer is just talking with someone who's already talking to you. This is like, this guy's not a Lutheran. He wants to be a Lutheran desperately. It's no fancier subject than talking with your wife or your husband or the guy in the next bar stool. It's a conversation between friends, for mercy's sake. Not an arcane skill you have to master. You know what the secret to prayer is? Praying. All you have to do is get free enough of your manipulative, buck-making designs on God to tell him anything that's on your mind. He's your daddy. And he's a lot easier to talk to than any other daddy you run into. You can tell him you'd like a new kitchen. You could tell him you'd appreciate it if your kid stopped smoking pot. You can tell him you'd be overjoyed if your biopsy came back negative. You could tell him you'd like to stop chasing skirts. A bit dated here, but not yet. This is St. Augustine, of course, who said, famous for St. Augustine, give me chastity, but not yet. Before he was a priest, before he was a bishop, he had a mistress for many years, a, a, a child from that mistress, and his mother always kind of said, shape up. And as he kind of came into the shape up in this, you know, his, his kind of famous prayer was, give me chastity, but not yet. Yeah, a few of us have had that prayer too, okay? So you can tell him you wish you were dead, which I hear about every ninth time I make a hospital or shut-in call. You can even be as specific as all get out and tell them you'd like to have an eight-cylinder spiritual life. In short, there's nothing you can't tell him because it isn't your bright or dim ideas he wants. It's you. And that you see is love. So kind of pack away these presuppositions. We're going to go harder now, and maybe it's some harder topics, but you've got to get the basics in first, which is Jesus loves you, Jesus listens to you, Jesus never leaves you, Jesus never hurts you. Say your prayers, okay? Let's go to church. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Please sign up for the men's retreat. Miguel, if you're here, will you pick up that sign-in sheet wherever you are? He's probably gone already. Mike Hopkins, you've been to church already? Can you just find that sign-in sheet and get it to me when it's all done? It's a yellow pad. Let people sign up first. I'm sure there are a dozen people who still want to do that. Thanks. Cheers.